Well, welcome everybody. Today is June 15th, 2021, and we are recording for a future broadcast. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. My guest today, I'm so excited, uh, one of my close colleagues, Megan Gunn, who is the chair of the Department of Pediatrics. Megan, welcome. We're so excited to have you. Hey, Trey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Gunn uh, received her medical degree from the University of Vermont College of Medicine, uh, her residency at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and she is board certified by the American Board of Pediatrics. So we know all about your training and your qualifications, but tell us about your uh, earlier life and where you grew up and eventually how you came to Bennington and SBMC. Absolutely. Um, So I am, well, Okay, I was born in New Jersey, but I'm a Vermonter. I moved here when I was four months old. So I do include myself. That definitely um, counts. Four yes, months is the cutoff. Right? Exactly. So we moved here um, when I was about four months old. And actually, I grew up in the Northeast Kingdom um, in St. Johnsbury um, until I was about 10. And then we moved to Rutland. And my dad actually was an emergency room physician as well. Um, and so, yeah, we moved to Rutland. And then I kind of was always interested in science and that type of thing. But my dad actually developed um, glioblastoma, which is a type of brain cancer um, when I was in middle school. And so then I got a little more interested in, um, you know, at a middle school level, researching different types of brain tumors. I think I did a report on brain tumors. It was what was close to me and what I was interested in. Um, so that's kind of when I first really started getting interested in medicine. And then, um, you know, my dad did pass away when I was a freshman in high school, but kind of, um, my mom always left me open to do what I wanted to do, but this was kind of my path. And like you mentioned, I did all my education and ended up here. Um, you know, I looked at a few places throughout Vermont at jobs, but I really loved the community here, particularly at the hospital, everyone was just so warm and welcoming and, and friendly. How did you go from brain tumors to pediatrics? I know that's a good point. I mean, that was totally not my thing. That was just kind of how I got there. You know, I've always babysat. I'm the oldest of three sisters and the boss. I made myself the unofficial boss when I was a child. Um, So kind of always just interested in kids and pediatrics. I went into med school kind of being really open to whatever felt right. And just, it was pediatrics as soon as I did that third year rotation that I kind of knew and set myself up to do my fourth year rotations and then my residency. I think that, um, you know, people in the audience, and frankly, I would think this too, if I wasn't a doctor in emergency medicine, uh, that a pediatrician uh, sees kids that have earaches all day, and we know that's not the case, although you do see a fair number of earaches. What, what type of, um, of not only disease encounters do you see, but what does it take to sort of be a pediatrician that kind of separates you from other types of doctors? Yeah, no, that's a, I like that question. And yesterday was like a day of a lot of earaches, but in general, it is not like that. So what I think is one of the most special things about pediatrics is that I will go from literally attending a birth in the hospital to then coming back and seeing a 21 year old patient who's in college. And, you know, we're talking about such different things to then a a toddler for a well visit and um, just so many. I love seeing all the different spectrum of years and ages. Um, I think the other thing about pediatrics is that 
obviously some of our patients don't speak. So we're getting a history and talking through the parent. And then I think um, the parent child dynamic does just make pediatrics different because obviously the child is my patient, but you know, the parents bringing them there, the parents a super important part of the visit. Um, and so I do like that they're kind of have that dual, both the child and the parent, you know, up until they're about 18 or so. Um, and so what other things do we see? I mean, obviously well visits, everyone's been to well visits at their doctors. Um, everyone's had their earaches, but then actually what I think some people don't um, necessarily know or realize unless they have, you know, a child with special needs is we actually do see a lot of complex patients. And luckily we do have, you know, Dartmouth nearby that we work with for if patients do need specialty services that are beyond kind of what we can provide um, on a daily basis in the office. And we work well with all those specialists, but really we, we do have some really, you know, complex medical care patients that are also um, really great to get to work with too. Absolutely. You know, again, um, from my vantage point, again, as, as a physician in the emergency department, what I admire so much about pediatrics is I know that 75% of your kids are, are well because that's how uh, life is. People are well when they're young. But then that other 10 to 25% um, have really complex needs that take up a lot of not only time, but um, of your mental power and uh, constant studying, constantly staying on top of of what's going on in healthcare for this age group. And anyway, I admire that. Um, and I think it's great because most people don't know that. And that's that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Um, just keeping, keeping kids healthy. Uh, pediatrics and then also, of course, the family medicine physicians that are taking care of, of children. It's a, it's a special field and it can be just as difficult or more so, frankly, than other fields. And there's also something else, though, that um, I really appreciated since I've had two two sons. And that is that personal relationship uh, that you have as a doctor with these children during, um, I want to say a vulnerable time, but it's not really vulnerable. It's a, it's a time where, where they are growing and they need someone to speak to other than their parents. Yeah, absolutely. And I even think, you know, it's a vulnerable time when they're older, but I tend to think of, you know, people come, especially if it's their first child, they come from the community, they bring their little baby to you for their first visit. That's a vulnerable time. You know, you're asking, you do have to ask some vulnerable questions. You know, it's, it's, even though it might not seem like a sensitive topic, you've been the parent of a young baby, you know, how are they feeding? Are they gaining weight? That can be very sensitive um, just with how everything's going. So I so appreciate that parents, um, and I realize that parents like put trusted me, a virtual stranger um, from the beginning um, and let me like, allow me the pleasure to take care of their kids. And I know that might sound a little hokey, but I truly do feel like that when I have time to slow down and kind of think about how um, awesome this job and opportunity is to be able to do that. And then, like you said, as kids get older, um, I try, you know, depending on the family and situation, I um, usually start talking to kids as the patient, like really more interviewing them, even from a young age, three, four, five, depending on the kid. Um, and I always say, you know, I typically say to the parent, you know, we're going to, we're going to ignore your parent for a minute in a nice way. And we're just right. going to talk if the kid's willing to do that. Um, and then as they get towards that teenage, you know, I do encourage kids to try to, 
at least for part of the visit, come in themselves and, you know, do some of their own advocating and talking and maybe venting if they need to vent about something they wouldn't, you know, feel as comfortable saying um, in front of their parent. But I really do try to focus as the child gets older, I say, you know, you're my patient, we do need to involve your parent for, you know, safety reasons. And obviously, they're the ones who bring you here, but but you're my patient. So um, you can, you know, trust in me and tell me anything. And I've been surprised by how open a lot of these, you know, teenagers and older kids have been. We've had some really great conversations. Absolutely. In fact, the word I think I was looking for is impressionable. They're an impressionable age. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, parents, obviously, uh, the relationship with the parents is first and foremost, and so important. But then there are things that parents just, um, kids do not connect with. And that is where a coach comes in, right? So I can work with my sons as much as, as, as I can to a certain point, but then they need their coach in their athletics or their teacher in their education. And as far as health matters go, and really sometimes difficult, intimate questions, uh, that's where the relationship with the pediatrician or other doctor or healthcare provider is so important and why, you know, even these well visits actually uh, uncover things that need to be addressed or, or reinforce that things were going well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your, um, about, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but a little bit about the, the practice here, your colleagues, the practice in the community uh, as far as pediatrics goes. How do you like who we have working here? Yeah. yeah. yeah so uh, we have a great team here. We have, um, I'm going to make sure I'm counting right now because it has changed throughout the years since I've been here. So there's um, three of three doctors down here in the Bennington site full time and two PAs. And then we also have a doctor that goes between uh, Northshire and our office too. Um, so we have that great team. And we, um, like you said, kind of do the spectrum of ages. We see kids from birth to somewhere in their early twenties. It kind of depends on the situation um, and kind of depends where the, where the patient is. Um, and then we see them for well visits. You know, some people think, well, my kid's well, why do I need to come in? But like you alluded to, there can be sometimes uncovering things. There are, you know, it's not common. Luckily kids are healthy, but uncovering some medical finding on their exam that was unexpected, um, you know, immunizations, keeping up with their immunizations, which is very important. Um, and then giving them a, an outlet and a place to be able to talk and have us ask some of those questions that sometimes parents might not feel comfortable with, like about risky behaviors um, and things like that. Do the parents come to you sometimes, Megan, with those questions that you, you have to address with the children first? I mean, I can imagine that could put you in an awkward situation, although you're a professional, I'm sure you know how to handle it. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there has been sometimes, you know, someone will call ahead of time and say, I want you to talk to my kid about vaping or something like that. And that's usually topics that we were going to talk about anyways. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, sometimes there's people that prefer we don't talk about those things. That's not common, but that's more what I struggle with, because really that is our job to ask about all those things. And if the answer is no, they're not doing that. And that's fine. That's good. But you, you have you don't know unless you ask and educate the kids. Sure. And um, are there a lot of kids that are hospitalized in this area um, or is that infrequent? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, we do, you know, on our women's and children's unit, which you think of as mostly kind of moms and babies and births and all that. We do admit children. It's not, um, again, too frequent, but we do admit kids for um, general asthma exacerbations. And sometimes if kids are dehydrated, anything that really um, doesn't necessarily require a specialist in more of a specialized field than a general pediatrician. Luckily, it's not too common. And this year, I don't 
I think we barely had any because there weren't too many illnesses going around. <laughs> That's right. That's um, crazy. Wearing masks really does prevent infections. It does. <laughs> From your perspective, then shifting little gears uh, to COVID-19, did you see much illness in, in children uh, in the pandemic? Um, meaning general illness or COVID or both? Sorry, COVID. COVID. We, um, so we, what do I, how do I say it? Most of the cases that we saw that were positive actually were um, patients that called and it was, they had an exposure really, I would say, and I don't have a number on that. Sure. But most of it was, oh, you know, mom has COVID or you know, uncle, and we had, you know, we got together with them or some school exposures, but a lot of our positive results that we had were kids that were fairly asymptomatic, not even enough to need to be seen. And they um, went through the nicely organized drive-through that you guys had. Um, and, you know, we had some kids here, we didn't have any patients, as far as I know, that got sick enough to need to be hospitalized, um, at least in our practice, which is great. And, you know, we're lucky as pediatricians that kids don't typically get as sick with COVID. Um, however, that doesn't mean that they can't. And that doesn't mean that um, there's no, not, there may be downstream effects. So that's why keeping all the protective factors that we need is important. Absolutely. You know, in fact, there's some circumstantial reasons why we didn't see as many uh, children. It's just the way we live in Vermont is not, you know, grouped together in apartments and high rises as much. Right. Um, and then school, you know, stopped pretty early, the areas where we'd congregate. I am a little concerned about this fall and winter um, if vaccination rates don't increase in children uh, and, and getting back into um, systems where they're closer together, just like anything um, in the wintertime when people are closer together, any of the infectious diseases are more likely to be spread. Um, how have the COVID vaccines gone for your 12 to 18 age group? Yeah, and I would agree about, um, you know, thoughts about the fall and not really knowing what to think yet. And I kind of think that's in general, even um, from like a state standpoint, we're just still figuring that out. Um, COVID vaccines have gone great. You know, the hospital here has offered um, two, I think two now large clinics, at least since there's been the um, 12 year old age that's been able to get vaccinated and we've had really good success with that. And then also the walk-ins available um, at Express Care. I would say, um, there's been good success, but we would like more 12 and older in that age range to be able to get vaccinated. And we're hoping this isn't a promise yet, but I guess this will air after we know to be able to vaccinate starting next Monday, which would be the 21st in the office, at least at visits to start with. That's great. So yeah. for everyone in the audience, um, you know, for yourselves and just tell your friends, uh, we've, we've probably got around 50%, let's call it, of 12 to 18 year olds that have um, received their first first shot. And we need much more than that. We need to get towards that 80 or 90% to have a good, healthy environment uh, for learning purposes, for playing, for socializing. And if, um, if the previous offerings in the large clinics or even at pharmacies um, or at our own express care uh, haven't been um, what your child was interested in, we're going to be able to vaccinate in our primary care offices soon, including pediatrics. And when I say we, I'm talking about the whole community here. This is beyond SBMC. This includes uh, other practices around because we're all working together uh, on, on this initiative. So when do you think, uh, looking in your crystal ball, that uh, younger age groups will be uh, eligible to be vaccinated? Right. Well, and that's like, that's one of the hot questions, definitely. Um, Cause I have a five and eight year old, so I'm very excited to be able to get them in line as soon as we can. You know, I mean, I think you can also agree. This has all moved 
safely, I want to clarify that, but more quickly than we expected, because people are excited to get into trials. And a lot of the, um, if it's correct in saying this, unnecessary red tape has kind of been taken away. So this has all been done very safely, but there's been people to enroll in the trial and there's enough disease burden to be able to effectively test these vaccines. So it all moved more quickly than I think some people anticipated, but I'm hearing maybe that next age group would be five to 12 and hopefully September, October. And then I believe they think they'll be doing, you know, the next group of two to five, not long after that. And then even six months and above. So I'm, I'm hoping we're looking at all those age groups being able to start this year in, in 2021 vaccinating. Which would just be, I mean, back to what we were just talking about five minutes ago, so important in uh, especially the education. I'm, I'm concerned as it's everyone. So I don't mean to say I, we are concerned about uh, just continuing to lose uh, some of the advancements in education. You know, not everybody can homeschool. People have work and it's so difficult. So vaccination is the answer and, and actually getting a high percentage of people vaccinated uh, is, is truly the answer. By the way, you mentioned something that, that um, I, I'd like to just say out loud because it's I think people in the audience, some can can relate to this. It does seem like things move fast uh, with the vaccination process. But let's look at it in a different way. If you are a researcher or a scientist or a doctor and you're working on a vaccine, that's one of your 15 things you're doing that day. You're going to be going to work. You've got to do some other things. You might work on the vaccine. Then you have another thing to do. But that's not what's gone on from the past year. Everyone's efforts and time have been focused 100% on developing these vaccines. So really the amount of time spent and resources is just as much or, or more than in previous vaccination efforts. It's just condensed because there was nothing else to work on but getting this done. And of course the safety profile is great. I know um, I do wanna just go into a little bit. I know we haven't seen any multi-inflammatory syndrome uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids, but can you just tell us a little bit about it? And and there was a lot of fear back in April and May, and that seems to have, uh, of last year, have waned a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I haven't heard of any, you know, children within the community that have been affected, luckily. Um, but basically, you know, my understanding, again, not having taken care of any patients with it is after you have a COVID infection, which may be completely asymptomatic, you may not even know you ever had a COVID infection. Um, in children, they are at risk for that multi-system inflammatory um, response which um, basically you can, after you're recovered, or if you never even knew, you can develop, you know, fever and then inflammation of multiple systems. So there's different rashes, heart inflammation, kidney inflammation, um, but usually those kids are pretty sick. Um, typically, I would say not even like outpatient, they're, they're sick enough to require inpatient, and then they kind of get that further investigation there. Um, but it is a syndrome. And so everyone kind of presents differently. That's you know, why it's a syndrome. So it's kind of a wide array of symptoms, but again, those kids are, those kids are sick. They're ending up in the hospital. Right. And I think we were all scared that the um, percentage was going to be higher. Um, it, it's real and there are kids that get it and will continue to get it, but it, it didn't blossom into something, um, you know, around the country that we were all worried about or in, in Europe and some of the places that first saw it. You know, I kind of, um, it's not exactly analogous. So I don't want anyone in the audience to say that I said it was, but um, there are a lot of diseases that a very small percentage of people will develop an inflammatory response 
an autoimmune type of response particularly. Um, and, and that comes from common diseases, even strep throat, which Dr. Gunn treats all the time. Uh, rarely a kid can develop heart problems and other things from this inflammatory response. So it's not unheard of from other viruses and bacteria, uh, but it's something that, that rightfully so gained a lot of media attention. And again, fortunately we didn't have uh, any known cases here. We, um, there may have been cases we, we weren't aware of, but they would have been few and far between. Well, and you can't develop it if you get vaccinated and don't get the disease. Right. So there's a way to allay some fears about that by getting vaccinated. That's exactly right. So uh, let's talk a little bit um, in the final bit here, apart from COVID-19, what are some of the other disease processes and health concerns that you see in this community? Yeah, you know, I mean, truthfully, this year, and it's no secret, everywhere with COVID and, you know, there has been an increase in mental health um, concerns and conditions. And, you know, I, I always say to people, because I'm kind of asking, you know, how, especially for kids I haven't seen in a year, you know, they come in for their well visit, I haven't seen them in a year. How are you faring with COVID? And I would say there's a portion that actually are doing like really well, a small portion. And right. kids like the online learning, especially the older ones that have done online learning. And then there's a, there is a smaller portion that are, have been really, really, really struggling. And then there's a big in-between where there have been, you know, there have been some pros. I think we could, most people can find some pros about this last year. You know, I got a lot of extra time with my kids every weekend. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but even, even those of us who were doing well, we've been isolated. We haven't been able to see family. We haven't had our regular activities. So certainly looking forward into these next, you know, I would say couple years is really trying to keep tabs on kids and their mental health and how they're doing. So I encourage parents to ask their kids, um, you know, even if they're young kids, kids understand, kids know that there's a virus, whether they understand the details um, and, you know, kind of just really paying attention to that. And if they're an older kid asking, you know, how they're doing and do they need to come in and see their doctor and find a counselor and kind of talk through things. Right. And I think you put that so well, Megan, because uh, a lot of times people don't ask that question because what can they do about it, right? What, right. what, what can you do about it? Well, you can listen, you can have discussions, and sometimes that is all that's needed. And if more is needed, then you can seek professional help, uh, and it really is beneficial. And it's not going to correct it in one day. It's an ongoing type thing. Uh, and frankly, and into adults as well. And I think, just like you said, most everyone can find uh, positive aspects uh, that have happened over the past year, which is a good way to look at it. Most everyone has also been negatively impacted. Um, all of us have. And, yeah. and being aware of that um, and, and being vulnerable to say it, I think, is part of the healing process. Well, and often, um, even in here with my own kids, um, you know, listening to them, letting them vent and well, I'm, you know, what's an example, I'm sick of having to wear the mask all the time in school or something or not, or, you know, what a big one. And this was hard. They have to sit in their classrooms and a lot of the schools and you take your mask off to eat lunch and they can't talk. So right. that's been hard. And I, you know, I just say, I understand that has to be really hard. I wouldn't like to eat lunch like that, but this, this is what we have to do. And hopefully as we get vaccines and people get vaccinated, all of this can, can get better. And usually that enough is just validating and listening. Like you said, this is what they're really looking for. Absolutely. All right. In this final few minutes here, um, you know, we talked about your work a lot, but tell us some of the either challenging or rewarding aspects of being a pediatrician. 
Oh gosh. Um, challenging is that I don't have all the answers. Um, and I think, um, something that I've learned in the eight years I've been here is things aren't as clear cut as I thought they were when I came in here fresh out of residency, you know? So I do a lot of, and I think I'm, I'm good with being honest about that. I'll say, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure. I think it's most likely this is going on, but we have to keep these couple other options and, you know, let's try this first. And um, sometimes we make shared decision-making, you know, it might be, well, I don't know, there's a the beginning of an ear infection, but they're not sick, sick. So I would recommend keeping an eye on things before antibiotics and kind of making shared decision-making. So I think that's been one challenging thing for me to learn, but then, you know, getting a better grasp on. And then most rewarding is kind of like I just said before, like, wow, people like trust me with their child. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> and their right. child's, you know, health and well-being. So I'm just so appreciative of all those um, great connections I've made with different families and different people in my time here. Well, you certainly earned it. Um, and yeah. you're the chair of pediatrics for a reason. And you have a great team, uh, not only locally here in, in our system, but throughout our area. You know, you brought up something that actually, I think we were just talking about this on a previous show. And I love the way you talked about it. And that's the shared decision making, because, um, you know, we're way past that paternalistic uh, uh, point in medicine where we, uh, as physicians, told patients what they needed. But, but we also kind of floundered, you know, four and five years ago, just trying to do this open shared decision making. Well, here are your five choices. Which one do you want? And that's not why they come to a doctor. It's certainly not why I take my vehicle into the mechanic. Uh, I want their expert opinion. And then I also want some autonomy in making that decision. And, um, and you just hit it right on the head. You said, here are some choices. Here's what I recommend and why, but here are some other choices and what would happen. And I think that's incredible. I'm, I'm going to thank everyone for joining us today on Medical Matters Weekly. We are a little bit out of time here. Uh, we will certainly have Dr. Gunn and, and her team, her staff of physicians and nurses back on uh, for another show. Um, I'd like to thank also Mike Cutler from CAT TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. Next week, we will have Dr. Nicholas Weinberg, who's an emergency physician at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. He also specializes in mountain and expedition medicine. Don't miss that one. It's so interesting hearing about what diseases and illnesses occur at altitude uh, near Mount Everest, Kilimanjaro, and other locations. You can send your questions to him at wellness at svhealthcare.org. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity, and we'll see you next week.